When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone, to the 154th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. I'm so excited to dollop the dream, make your daughter's journey to adulthood the best for both of you, will be launched into the world this Mother's Day, 2022. So this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about Chapter 2, The Maturity Gap, Why You're Confused, and Chapter 3, Letting Go. This maturity gap in our graduating seniors makes it that much harder to let go. So the reason you are confused, Mom, is that your daughter is legally an adult at 18, and she is legally responsible for her behavior, and she has many rights where she doesn't need your parental consent. But nothing magical happens at 18 from a neuroscience perspective. The brain still continues to develop till 25 or later. So what does that mean? Actually, you know this better than anyone. You see her immaturity on a day-to-day basis. And here's a quote from my book. See, you know your daughter up close and personal. You know her weaknesses and her vulnerabilities. You also see her strengths and accomplishments. If you're uncertain about letting your precious teen go, it's for good reason. It's biologically impossible to check off all the boxes that would ease your mind and heart. 
your 18-year-old or even 20-something daughter does not have an adult brain. The reality is your daughter's brain is both grown up and not quite grown up. Take heart that they're a work in progress. They will mature. But right now, you're dealing with what's known as the maturity gap. So what is the maturity gap? Well, here's the formula. It's physical maturity plus cognitive maturity plus emotional immaturity equals the maturity gap. So the rest of chapter two, I explain what's going on in the 18 to 25-year-old brain and flesh that out in real situations. Moms, this is so important to understand the maturity gap so you will be able to adjust your expectations for your emerging young adult. The next chapter, chapter three, is about letting go. And I think nothing can be more confusing as to what it means to let go of your teen. So I dive into the complexities of it. I remember speaking to fellow therapists at the Texas Association of Marriage and Family Therapists about how teens need to individuate from their families. I was so sure of myself and detached because I hadn't experienced it yet with my own daughter. But I think letting go of my daughter is one of the hardest things I've ever done and I'm still doing. Letting go has so many feelings attached to it, and they can be all true at one time. There can be real grief, and there can also be real relief, sometimes in the same hour or even in the same minute. I think one of the questions I hear a lot from moms of graduating seniors is, what's my role now if I'm supposed to let go? I know, good question. It can make you feel a little panicky when you think about letting go. And so I promise you, we will fully explore that question in the next several chapters. I also want to invite you to the online Dial Up the Dream global event, which will be happening on May 5th. This is going to be so much fun, and I want to share this with you. During our time, I will interview some of the people I talked about in my book, and there will also be time to ask me anything in our Q&A. The best part is that this event is free. After you pre-order, dial up the dream. I would love to see you there. Go to dialupthedream.com to learn more. Again, dialupthedream.com to learn more. All right. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. I was so touched, and I know you will be too. I promise you will be encouraged. Dr. Robin and I have a heartfelt discussion about how life is hard, but that we and our teens can tap into everyday resiliency and rise up and get up the next day. This interview is all about hope, about Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, described as one of the most sought-after engaging, thought-provoking, and truly transformative international speakers and scholars in her field, Dr. Robin is a multi-award-winning education and psychology instructor, author, and resiliency. What sets Dr. Robin apart is how she learned resiliency from the ground up as a person who has experienced significant obstacles yet forged her comeback. Dr. Robin has over 16 years of university teaching and research experience, and brings a refreshing and researched, informed perspective to our understanding and practices of resiliency and wellness. Dr. Robin's work is accessible and relatable while offering practical strategies that are realistic and sustainable. So welcome, Dr. Robin. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. 
Yes. So the first question I always ask my guests is if you have children and what are their ages? Yeah, great question. So we have three children and our oldest is about to turn 18. Uh, His name is Hunter and our daughter, she's about to turn 16. Her name's Ava and actually Hunter and Ava have the same birth date. So March 24th uh, is a big day in our house and our littlest is Jax and Jax is about to turn 14. So we have uh, 13, 15 and 17 right now with birthdays on the horizon. Ah, so you know teenagers up close and personal. I am familiarizing myself very quickly (laughs) with uh, the seasonhood of teenagerhood. And uh, yeah, so we're definitely in the middle of it. Yeah. So I enjoyed reading your book, Calm Within the Storm, A Pathway to Everyday Resilience. So can you tell me why you wrote the book? I'd be happy to share with why I wrote the book. For me, what was really important was to contribute to this idea about resiliency and wellness in hopefully a a different perspective point. I wanted to be able to talk about it, not only from like personal lived experience as somebody who has gone through a whole bunch of different types of challenges and setbacks, but also be able to bring in my experience as a scholar, as someone who has studied resiliency for over 20 years. So at the time, I didn't see a lot of books where we were braiding personal story and theory and application. So I set out to put that work into the world and it's been just such an honor to be able to share this work with people. Oh, that's great. So I know you started your book with your own story. So what's your story of resilience? That is a huge question. So I think our uh, when I think about my resiliency story, it's it's an ongoing story. It's a, a living story. I definitely have had seasons and times in my life where I've had to use resiliency in a different way or had to learn as I go. But for me, what was really substantive and what I talk about in the very beginning of the book is what my teenagerhood was like. Now, I was someone who grew up with all of the things. I had support. I had conscientious and aware parents. I had all of my my needs met. I, I couldn't have wished or hoped for a more supportive environment to grow up in. Yet somewhere early on, I started to have struggles. Uh, Even I can recall as far back as as kinder care, like kindergarten, four or five years old, realizing that I kind of saw the world differently. I felt the world differently. And that was this, you know, cascading effect that really started to get off course by the time I hit adolescence. And I can share with you, and I do in the book with quite radical candor, I I went off the deep end when I was in high school and I actually ended up dropping out of high school. I was navigating major mental health and emotional health issues. My risk-taking behavior was really out of hand and my parents loved me so hard Mm -hmm. and helplessly. You know, Mm -hmm. they really tried to get me back on track. And so I start in the book talking about an experience during that very precarious season where as I actually had started to recover, my family actually moved and we moved from the big city to a small community so I could start to get well away from some of the distractions and the noises and the pressures And I had a fresh start because we know fresh starts are something sometimes that's what we need. And I got into my fresh start and I started my recovery, started to get well and healthy. And then I experienced a catastrophic car accident where everything just came crashing down. I was driving a vehicle, uh, lost control of a car during a snowstorm 
And my vehicle went off an embankment and crashed through the ice. And my vehicle sank in the Otonabee River. And I was drowning in a car, 16 Mm. years old. Mm. Mm. And I was able to survive that experience. I was able to get myself out of that car. And a gentleman rescued me that night. He was awarded the Governor General's Award in Canada for bravery for rescuing me. He's risked his life to do so. And Mm. what happened after that experience, and I think often what people see my story and say, oh, you know, Robin was so derailed, had this catastrophic accident, and then she was good. It was this comeback story. But the reality is that comeback story was years. Recoveries aren't linear. And what I attribute my ability to be able to weather those difficult uh, periods of my life and seasons was very much my parents, my family, the the way that they stuck by me and helped me learn and grow and recover. So I experienced, uh, again, as a, as you know, mindful of your listeners with teenagers, I had that teenagerhood that most of us as parents, we just would never wish for our child. We just would do anything to avoid them having to go through it. Yet I did go through it. And one of the things that's so important to me about why I want to share this work, and I spoke to my father about wanting to share this with candor. And my father said, please share this story because it gives us hope as parents. It gives hopes to other parents to know we can get back on our feet. Yeah, I just think to all the moms listening out there, I think often we have so much shame about what our teens are doing. And we feel like failures as moms and we're all together in this. And I love what Dr. Raman just shared because that wasn't the end of her story. And now she's doing amazing things all over the world. And just, I hope that encourages all the moms who are listening to this. Yeah. I mean, that's such a gift. I mean, just right there, we could stop and just say, we're done. (laughs) Because <laughs> it's very, very encouraging. So, all right. So you talk about everyday resilience, which I love that term, everyday resilience. So what is that? Yeah. So from my, again, my personal experience, but then going on to be a scholar, got myself kind of back into school, started a new trajectory for myself again, with lots of support. And one of the things that I became really curious about is at the time, a lot of people were talking about resiliency around like grit or toughness or like a hardiness, right? Like we have to like pull up our bootstraps and, you know, this tough mentality. And when I started to see the persons in my work and my practice, I realized that there was something so much deeper than that. Like, sure, maybe on the outside, they have this like armor and they're able to withstand whatever comes their way. But what puts them in that position that they're able to even stand in the face of adversity? So we identified that there were actually five key areas, and we did call it everyday resiliency. And we talk about belonging, perspective, acceptance, hope, and even a dash of humor is what we see helps people build a foundation for comebacks. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You just jumped way down in my questions. So can you talk about those five key pillars of everyday resiliency and what makes these pillars for resiliency? 
if you could just go through each one. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'd be happy to. So the first, and I think the the first kind of place where we start is that sense of belonging. You know, we're meant to have community. We're meant to be in community. Now, I think sometimes what happens though, is there's this idea that we need like a whole tribe, right? We need all of these people. And yes, of course, we know having lots of people is key, but we also know that one caring, consistent adult in a child's life can make all of the difference in the world. So that belonging, we need that secure attachment, that that connection to someone who's looking after us. And that's where it starts, knowing we have someone in our corner who will stand by us, protect us, love us, accept us for as we are. So belonging, having that home team is step number one. Now, the second one we talk about is perspective. And what's interesting, the more lived experience we have, the more perspective we can grow. If we don't have uh, more experiences, then we won't really be able to cultivate a wider worldview. So one of the things we saw about resilient people is it wasn't just how they saw the world, but it was also how they felt about the world, that they have this alignment between their head and their heart, and they operate from their values. Now, you can call it mindset or attitude, but what we see is it's very much that perspective of that alignment with using your head and your heart. The third one we talk about is acceptance. And the reality is sometimes we're given a hand that we don't want to play, right? We don't want it to go this way. We didn't sign up for this. We didn't ask for it. And one of the things I came upon in my work is there were this common reaction I would hear from parents and persons that would say, you know, why is this happening to us? We did everything right. Or why is she doing this? And every once in a while, I would have a parent that says, what do we do? What's my next move? Where do I go from here? And when we're in that place of why, we're resisting our reality. When we move to that place of, okay, what's next? What's the next right move I can make here? We go into action and then we start to create that relationship with understanding acceptance. The fourth one we talk about is hope, choosing to live hope-filled, living in hope with others. It's the most powerful place that we can operate from. And especially as parents, and I say this to my three teenagers, part of what my job is, is to hold hope for our family. I will hold the line. I will trust and lean into that this is all going to work out. I will hold that morale of my family because I know hope matters. I see what happens when you believe in people. And the last one is it's a bit of a wild card because it's this idea about humor. And we talk about humor in terms of like lightheartedness and joy and play and merriment. Sometimes when we are in the darkest seasons, when we can still have these little flickers of joy, laughter. And again, it, it just allows us to weather the storm. We get moments of reprieve. And when we see those five together, that's when people get so strong and they can do a comeback. Yeah. I love that. So why does resiliency matter? I think resiliency matters because the reality is life's hard, right? Life's Mm -hmm. messy, life's complicated. And I know somewhere along the line, especially as mothers, I think we've picked up this narrative that we're supposed to make it look easy, right? Like we're supposed to have this like seamless, spacious approach to our lives. 
But the reality is it's it's hard and we know we're going to have setbacks. We know part of the lived experience is also having those shadow parts. So why I think resiliency is so important is that especially when children are little, let them work and learn those coping skills and those kind of, we call it failing forward when they're little. So then that way the stakes aren't as high. And if we never let our children do that, all of a sudden they end up in university and they don't have coping strategies and that sets them up for failure. So why I think resilience is so important is life's hard and we have to figure out how to navigate it to the best that we can. Yeah. I love that you just say it's hard. It's just really hard because I do think I, I completely agree with you because I deal with lots of moms and talk to moms yeah. is we want it to be easy for them. They want, we want getting into college to be easy. We want all getting on the dance team to be easy and it is hard. And one of the things, too, I thought about is, you know, I'm a therapist and been practicing for 28 years. Mm-hmm. And what I've heard a lot of moms say of teens is that when they have little ones, it's okay to talk about why it's hard. They said, we can't talk about the hard things with other moms in the teenage years. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It just feels very, very shameful. And that's why I have groups of moms who can, like, be really honest about how hard it is because moms, if you think everybody else is having an easy time, it's not, they're not. No. And you know, I, I think we're not doing a service to one another by the fact that we don't acknowledge what it takes and all the invisible labor and the emotional labor it takes to raise healthy people. And we're doing that while we are still learning and growing and trying to get healthy ourselves. Yes. You know, that was one of the conversations I recall with my children talking to them about is that like, I don't have this all figured out, but you can trust that your mom will do the best she can with the tools and the resources that I have, but I'm still learning too. And as we went in, and again, for me, it was very much, you know, I was a single mom for so many years. It was like, okay, guys, I want you to be healthy, adaptive. I want you to land on your feet here. I also have to find a way to get healthy and adapt and land on my feet We're going to do this together and we need to give each other a lot of space to recognize that we're not always going to get it right the first time, but we're brave enough to try and we have the courage to say we're sorry. And to me, creating this environment where I never, I told my children as soon as they were born, I will not be perfect at this kids, right? I remember the doctor handing me the babes, you know, and even having Hunter in my arms that very first night, having a conversation saying, buddy, I will do my best. And I hope my best is enough. Yeah. And the great news is you don't have to be perfect, which you talk about in your book, but it's such great news. It's like, I've had a lot of teenage girls tell me, oh my God, my mom thinks she's so perfect. They don't really respect that either. My daughter really respected when I would just say, I'm really sorry. I screwed up. Yeah. That's when she respected me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, again, it's, we have this like narrative that we're carrying that is not serving us by any means by keeping this from them in terms of the fact that we're learning and growing. And by no means do we want to burden them with, you know, grown up and adult challenges and problems, but we also need to make sure that we have that type of dialogue because if the, the model we're establishing is perfection and the children are comparing themselves to it, it's just creating a bigger Delta in the relationship versus creating bridges, creating pathways. And that's what it's all about recognizing that there's different ways for us to learn and do this journey together 
And we're co-creating this relationship as we go. And there's not one right way to do it. Absolutely. So the moms listening might be thinking like, so are kids just innately resilient and others just aren't, or can you teach a kid to be resilient? Yeah, I very much hold the position that we can cultivate resiliency. I don't believe it's something you're born with or not. Now, of course, there's things like temperament, right? There's things about personality that do contribute, but it's not a sentence. It's not saying like, oh, if I have a child who is sensitive or a child who's, you know, a real empath, that means they're going to have a harder go. Just means they're going to have to pick up different tools and skills to be able to navigate their life. So it's something that can be taught. And one of the ways that we can encourage that kind of belief or that kind of narrative that we hold with our children is to to recognize the things like effort, not being so focused always on the outcomes. And I remember even, you know, working with young moms and uh, little ones and, you know, a, a child would show them a picture, for example, that they drew at childcare. And we'd say, oh, that's a pretty picture of a sunshine or a pretty picture of the sun. And we would reframe that and say, wow, that picture took a lot of creativity. It took a lot of effort. It took a lot of persistence to work through that picture. I enjoy watching you do that work. And it completely changes what we're reinforcing. We're not reinforcing outcomes all the time. We're reinforcing the process, the skill sets that we want to cultivate in our little ones. Yeah, I completely agree. So you talk about the three obstacles to resilience, mm-hmm. stress, fear, and stigma. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed those chapters. So can you talk about why they are an obstacle to resiliency? Of course. Now, I, I think there's many obstacles to resiliency, but the three I chose to focus were on the stress and the fear and very much the stigma. Because in my work, that's what I was seeing was really holding people back from their most authentic and resilient self. And the stress, the reality is if, you know, we think about all of these, you know, these reactions, our nervous system, the anxieties and all of those things, that really precludes us from feeling well. And again, I, I didn't write this book about resiliency for resiliency's sake. I wrote it so people can feel well, so that they can show up unapologetically as they are and realize I'm okay. So recognizing that relationship with stress and pressure was key. Then that fear piece ties into it. Many of us are so afraid of the uncertainty and we spend so much time building that like anticipatory anxiety, like worrying about what could go wrong, especially as parents. And I can empathize with other moms like, gosh, I remember when they were babies, I was just like, I just have to get them into toddlerhood. If I could just get these three little beings into toddlerhood, then I won't worry. And then all of a sudden it became elementary school. And then it was middle school, then it was high school. And then all of a sudden here I have, you know, an emerging adult on my hands and realizing it's never going to hit a season (laughs) where there isn't fear. (laughs) It just grows as I, you know, see him getting ready to go off to post, you know, to university next fall. Right. So fear is big. And the third one, and the one I really wanted to shine a light on was that piece around stigma. And as a person who's grown up, with different experiences with stigma as someone with, you know, learning disabilities as someone with ADHD, um, those were like branded on my soul. And I recall that a lot of the things that really got in my way was the relationship I had with some of those parts of who I am that weren't accepted in society. Yeah. So how can you remove these obstacles? 
Great question. So first, I think to kind of, you know, with with stigma to start there, um, you know, I think we're making efforts towards building more awareness about emotional health and mental health. But I think it starts in the family system, right? I think systemically things need to change, but where our children will get the most impact immediately is in how we talk about some of those things. For example, you know, as with having learning disabilities, the fact that we talk openly about it, you know, I share with my children that, you know, there's certain areas, the way I see the world, it's different. The way I, the way I interpret information might be different and I can have ADHD and also be a very successful contributor to society, right? Just letting them know that some of the things that we're carrying don't preclude us from being contributors by being part of somebody who could do good things. When we think about the fear, I think there's this place of, you know, again, where do we cultivate bravery and courage if we're always, you know, rescuing our children from experiences when they feel fear that doesn't send them the message that think we think that they can manage it. Now, of course, that's different than risk. We're not going to put children in high-risk situations, but instead of taking them out of situations that, that makes them feel afraid, we talk about it. We dissect it. We unpack it. And I can even share when uh, our son went to his very first day of high school, he shared with me, he was so afraid. He was just feeling so much anxiety and fear. And he is a very well-liked, accepted child. He, you know, captain of the basketball team would be the last child you'd think would be worried going into grade nine at like six foot three, right? Here he is, this big, confident boy on the basketball court, but going into a new school, he was so nervous. And I remember uh, a line from a book that said, sometimes you just need 20 seconds of courage and it can get you in the door. And so I love, I love that quote. Yes. Yeah. And so Hunter and I made a deal. I said, buddy, just give me 20, just 20 seconds. Just give it 20 seconds. Embrace the discomfort. I might've said, embrace the suck, right? Like literally just embrace (laughs) embrace it for 20 seconds. Just get in the door and then text me just get in the door. And of course I get a text that was, yeah, I'm in the door. It's going to be fine. Right. And and those are the things that just put your heart at such ease. So giving them the tools to meet their fear versus rescuing them. And that's when we talk about in my work about being a supporter versus a rescuer. Yeah. Often we're rescuing instead of that supporting. And that last piece about the stress is really teaching our children how to stress wisely and being careful what we give our, our focus and our attention to. And, you know, I, and I know parents have the best intentions. I truly operate from that place that people are trying the best that they can. And then when I hear people say things like, you know, if you don't do well on that test, you'll never get into college. If you don't do this, you'll never, it's like, oh my goodness. I wish you could see what my transcripts look like. And I ended up becoming a doctor, right? And not that it's like a, I can do it so you can do it. It's not that type of, I don't mean to use that in that way. There's always roots. Even if maybe you don't have the best transcripts, there's ways that we find ways to be able to contribute. So being mindful about where we put the stress and the focus, I think is important as strategies to minimize that as you asked. What can parents do to help their kids be resilient? Yeah. So I think a starting point, what I really encourage families when I'm working with them is this idea about thinking about value-based living. And what I mean by that is focusing on things like work ethic, 
focusing things on integrity, focusing on things of being of service. And you're absolutely right when you talked earlier about the fact that teenagerhood is a very competitive season between families, between parents, between children. Like there's a lot of competition. And again, like kind of marking your stake in that. And what we, I think where we start is, is again, building that perspective about being courageous, that we are people of integrity and value. And, you know, as I, I don't know if this is good parenting advice, but I always joke with my children about the fact that when they'll say things like, oh, you know, this, this person's mom lets them go do these behaviors. And I always say, well, clearly I love you more, right? Because I'm not going to let you do those <laughs> things. And again, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's a wise parenting practice, but the children, I joke about that. It's like, you know what? Other families are going to do what works for their family. This is a family that operates with a very high level of integrity that we try to work within our values. And all of those sub behaviors, those resilient behaviors, we're going to, they're going to start to grow in a very organic way. Because when we want to hold the value of bravery, we put ourselves in situations where we have to figure it out. We try, we take risks and it's a safe place to take risks. And we also make sure we ask for help. And I often talk to my children that, you know, speaking again about what you said earlier about how sometimes when our teenagers are struggling, we feel like failures. You know, my mother was a nurse. I had a drug addiction and my mother was a nurse. Like she was just so beside herself that she didn't see the signs, but you don't always see them in your own person. You don't see them in your family. And what happens, I think, is I know in my case, I waited way too long to ask for help because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I didn't want to be that black sheep in the family, so to speak. And creating a culture where we can ask for help that we say like, hey, I need something here is important. And one of the other practices that I've developed with my own children and then have shared it with other families is, you know, when the children are having a hard time, we use this practice where we say, okay, there's three things that I can do for you in this moment. I can listen, I can offer you advice, or I can intervene if you need me to carry this. And as you know, I'm sure with your amazing expertise in clinical practice, more often than want, they just want us to listen, right? They just yeah. want to be heard. But there has been times when the children have said, I need you to take this. I can't do this. And mm -hmm. that's when you recognize because they can tell the difference of like, mm -hmm. no, no, this is when I need an intervention or I need some extra help. Then, you know, it's something that you can offer and you can work through it together. Yeah. I'm seeing this parallel between mom's growth and her own resilience and her teen's growth in resilience. Yeah. Like you're talking about fear before mom working on her own fear and stress. Yes. Because what happens, and I, I love the neuroscience in my first mm -hmm. book, Dot Down the Drama, is all based around yes. that. So mom's fear quickly can turn into judgment. Yes. And I think judgment can definitely stop resilience mm -hmm. or be a blocker. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, what's so interesting is often when we're judging our teenagers, that we're not actually necessarily concerned about the outcome for them. It's what it makes us look like. And yes. we've, we've really like personified what those experiences. So for example, you know, if your child is successful on the dance team or on the sport team or, you know, wherever academically, we internalize that as we've done a good job. Yes. And I think the difference is recognizing that there are things that we can do when the children are smaller to teach them the right ways. We can support them. We can nurture them and show them the different paths. But I assure you, by the time they're hitting teenagerhood, 
they're making their own decisions, right? That's not necessarily a reflection. And again, as I shared earlier, like my family created a, a very safe, loving, supportive environment. And I still found a way to go off course. Uh, that yeah. was all me. That was, that's something that I own because that was my experience. And I also very much believe that was the path that I was meant to take. And I appreciate that it was a hard season and it hurt my family, but I don't regret it because you can't get to here and have this learning and then think like, oh, I should have taken that easier route. Yeah. And I completely agree with you about that holding hope. Mm. And I remember when I supervised in a medical school and I supervising a psychologist with a very hard client mm. and she was rude and mean and insulted her and told her she was terrible week after week after week. And one of the sessions, the client said, have you given up hope on me? And I completely agree. You know, our teens are like that client. Mm-hmm. They can throw out the worst at us. Yes. But I think one of the biggest gifts we can give our kids, like you just said, is that we hold that hope. Yeah. Not just in the words, but even in our imagination. Mm. Like we see them in our imagination getting through it. Yes. That they're going to be okay. Yeah. And I can share with you in my darkest season, and I shared this candidly as well in the book, you know, I remember being hospitalized. So literally went from school one morning into an adult mental health facility. Mm. As a 16 year old girl, I end up in an adult psychiatric hospital and my mother coming in that night Mm. and sitting on the end of my bed. And she said, you can't see it right now. I promise you better days are ahead. Mm. And she told me her vision she spoke her vision for me and not envision in any like woo woo way, but her yeah. vision to me saying, I see you getting better, Robin. I see you having a family one day. I see you being able to get back into school. I see you having all of these gifts that you're going to share. She's like, mm. I believe in you. And she talked me when I, I had lost all hope at that point. And I talk in the book about how, you know, disease of hope is the lack of hope is is that disease of what depression feels like. It's literally the body couldn't hold hope. Like I physically, I had gone so dead and numb on the inside. And here was my mom sitting at the end of the bed saying, I'll hold it for you until you get your hope back. And she told Uh, me what my future would be like. And you know, what's, what's amazing in reflection upon that is I couldn't see it, but I leaned into her dreams for me. I leaned into what she was hope filled for me for. And, you know, one of the hardest things, and again, talk about this in the book as well, is the fact that I lost my mom before I got to that place that Mm. she described, but me living here now is a legacy of her. Because she's the one that said this is going to happen. She was Mm. the one uh, who put that in my heart when I couldn't hold on to it. Mm. That is so beautiful. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) What is the resiliency trajectory model and the four phases? 
Yeah. So one of the things that we came upon when we, again, my own experience, but also working with other people is we noticed that there were patterns. Now there's no like one way through resiliency or through, you know, getting through difficult seasons, but we noticed their patterns similar, like with grief that we know there's phases, uh, sorry, phases and stages. So what we saw, and it started with, you know, people had an adverse event and that's just rocks us to our core. It literally gives us this like omnipresence in our lives. Like all of a sudden we're like smack dab, we're aware. It's like when we just kind of get brought into reality quickly, right? That decline phase. And yes. that feels awful. It, yes. it's, it's terrible. It's, you know, it's scary. It's overwhelming. And just, it's that place that people hit that we, you know, some of us might know it's out there. Some people don't even know that that level of pain or worry or fear even exists, but we find ourselves there. And the amazing thing about the human condition is even when we're in those darkest moments, we start to adapt. We start to create different ways of doing things. We start to develop new skill sets, new learnings. We start to grow to compensate and manage what we're going through. It's interesting. We don't even have to necessarily be aware of it. We just start doing it. We start finding ways to coexist with our situation. And then what we saw is people kind of evolved into what we call this reclaim phase where they were far enough away from the pain, the hurt, the loss, whatever it was then they started to take pieces and parts that they wanted to carry with them forward. So they were reclaiming their identity. We become a person who lives with this, where somebody who has been able to find a way through these different experiences. And we saw that look very different for everyone, but the commonality was, is they started to rebuild. They started to rebuild and co-create. And I often talk about in my work, you know, things like grief, it never goes away. We just find ways to carry it. We find ways to bring it with us into every day, into every season, every holiday, every good event. We hold that space for our loved ones with us. And then we get to that place of rising, rising when we're kind of far enough away from the immediate pain of the experience that we start realizing we've gone through a lot, we've grown through a lot, and we are markedly different but we're not broken. And we were never broken in the first place. We were in a Mm. season of growth and change. Mm, That is so powerful. Mm. Thank you. So I love the quote that your grandfather said is that storms disappear once you see the lighthouse. Yeah. And I write about that in my work about the fact we, that's holding hope again. It's this idea that if we keep that steadfast confidence towards this place we're trying to get to and believe it's possible, we are able to to weather those storms, those setbacks, those challenges. We all need those and those daily reminders. Often I think what happens, we're so often on autopilot, right? We're just going through the motions, trying to check all the boxes and we sometimes lose sight of what matters most. And one of the, I would share one of the missions of my work is how do I help people essentially wake up without them having to experience tragedy? Because we know tragedy wakes people up. It marks them differently in this level of awareness, compassion increases. They're just humility, just being of service. All of those traits happen to someone who's gone through hard things. Mm -hmm. I would like people to have those outcomes without necessarily having to go through such you know, catastrophes to get them and to see if that's possible. Yeah, that's so great. Thank you. So I know one of the things that I've done is I'm old school, but I have index cards. I love it. 
if I hear something and it really speaks to me, I write it down on an index card. Yes. And so I start in the mornings, I go through my index cards and they're just a reminder of what I truly believe and what I truly want for my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Having those values to live by those things that matter most, keeping that top of mind is so important. And what also, I think also helps too, is it's not just, you know, kind of aspirational. We can use those in your case, your index cards, or for me, these symbols of like a lighthouse and what that represents something I write about. We can use those as a lens in which we make decisions by. So, you know, for example, I had a a kind of a tricky decision I had to make with work recently and I use my values and I put my three top values over top of it and use that as the lens in terms of I make decisions. So it's not just aspirational living to this greater good or trying to manifest good things in your life. It's we actually use them to help us chart our course. And when I put my lens of my top three values over that question, it, it wasn't even a question anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a question. It was like, okay, the, oh, no, we're not doing that. I'm not doing that because it didn't touch even near the things that matter most to me. And in, in my case, it's, you know, it's, it's my, obviously my family and my faith. And for me, it's also the freedom to be able to design my day. I love having the freedom from illness, freedom from stress. Like I really love creating this type of a workflow and for my family. And as soon as I put that over top, I realized, you know what, this is going to really take away some of our freedoms if I make this commitment and it's going to negatively impact my family. So using our values as markers, I think is really helpful versus waiting for the right decision to appear, right? No one's coming to rescue us. No one is coming in to give us uh, a ticket out of this. Yes. You have to do the work. Yes. For the mom who's listening out there, how would a mom find her values? Mm. That is such a good question because I think so often we have like, almost like socially appropriate values, right? Like we have values that like we think other people say we should have. So how do you find your values? I think ties into this idea about knowing your, what's like your signature strength, like knowing what is in my core that reflects me without all the other narratives. So for example, it makes you feel energized when you're living in your value, right? It makes you feel essential to who you are. This is what I want to be known for. This is what I'm about. And it also is relatively effortless for you. Like that's one of the things, you know, for me, it's not a hardship. My values don't weigh me down. My values hold me up. So again, even, you know, being someone who, um, you know, as using my faith, for example, that's not something that's holding me down. That's something that I use that gets me through the darkest hours when I can't find the answer, right? Surrendering. And again, so using those values that just really speak to who you are and again, not feeling the pressure that your values have to match somebody else's, right? It's, it's unique and it helps you know that this is where you're best in alignment with your true self. Oh, that's so good. So our values can be different from our best friend. 100%. They should be, right? Wouldn't it be beautiful if we had this mosaic of people of different values and learning from one another? Yeah, that's wonderful. So do you have any last advice for the moms listening? 
Okay. So as a, (laughs) this goes out to any mom who has a daughter who might roll her eyes and look at the ceiling for answers, because that was a behavior we've been stick handling at our house where I'll say something to Ava. And I actually told her, I'm like, you know, there's no answers on the ceiling, right? As those big (laughs) eye rolls were going around. And one of the lessons I've just come upon that I want to share with your listeners is especially when we're giving our children and our teenage girls feedback is to make sure that we take the time to connect before we correct. And Ava helped me learn that. And she shared with me, she goes, mom, you're correcting way too much. She's like, pick one thing. (laughs) I said, oh, okay. And I thought that's reasonable, right? How would you feel Mm -hmm. going into work and your boss tells you 15 things that you need to work on, right? Nobody wants that level of, of feedback or criticism. So Ava and I worked through that. She's like, connect with me first. Ask me how my day was. Let's visit and talk. And then I said, well, you know, when you come home and you close the door and put on your headphones, you're not really sending me the cues that you want to connect. Yeah. Mom, that's when I need it the most. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we have made a practice of, you know what? We do a lot better with our corrections when she and I are in the car and we're on our way to go get a drink at Starbucks. We do a lot better in those conversations when it's her and I, and there's not distractions of her brothers or the dogs or the cats or Papa, right? Like we're, she needs that feedback when she feels as though we're connected and then she'll listen for days. So my daughter taught me that one. And that's the one I would like to share with your, with your group. I love it. Yes. I think God created Starbucks for mothers and daughters. Agree. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to share this. My new book, which is Dial Up the Dream, Make Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You, starts at junior, senior year, up through 25. Nice. So I asked all my moms who had daughters who were already left home and went mm-hmm. to college, I said, what would you do differently her senior year? Yeah. And one of them said, I would spend more time connecting and less time correcting. Nice. Beautiful. And you just said that. And I just yeah. think that just sums it up. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yes. So if moms want to contact you or find your book, what can they do? Yeah. So the best place to start on socials or the website, uh, robinhd.ca. And Robin has an E. Uh, most people <laughs> forget that. So it's Robin, R-O-B-Y-N-E, last name, Hanley Defoe. And it's hd.ca on socials. It's just Dr. Robin. And I would love, love to hear from your community and we can continue to support one another, especially with, with your new book coming out. I, I'm looking forward to experiencing that and just the, the wisdom that you will share with so many families. So thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, well, yes. Your book really blessed me. I can just tell you that. It's just, and it's so important. So I love resiliency. I love to talk about resiliency and I love your book. So I wish you the best. Thank you. Take good care and thank you for this opportunity. You're so welcome. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it. If you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. 
And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.